And that has been, for me, the, one of the greatest joys of doing this story so far is I sit my four-year-old down and my seven-year-old down and my eight-year-old down, and we talk about what we're learning in church. And it's the same thing. Uh, we're reinforcing that. We're learning lessons together. That's the beauty of the story. I hope you are doing that. You don't need to be a Bible scholar uh, to, to sit down and talk about the life lessons from the story. So I encourage you to do that in your homes day in and day out. It was good to see Jonathan and Danielle here this morning. Uh, I can't tell you how many times when this was still a basketball court, Jonathan fouled me on my way to the basket uh, over the years. So uh, Jonathan grew up in this church, and it's so great to see him doing the Lord's work over there in Thailand. And uh, what we couldn't say, you know, when the kids were in was just the, the true darkness of the human trafficking problem in Thailand. They, they are on the front lines of one of the greatest battles of the 21st century. And uh, we really do hope that you'll talk with them about perhaps supporting them and uh, making sure that that harvest of righteousness that Bill sort of talked about in, in Korea extends to Thailand one day. Wouldn't that be great if by the end of, of our lifetime, Thailand was sending the missionaries around the world because people cared to go and cared to do that hard work and, and, and made those bridges by dealing with social issues in the midst of sharing the gospel. So if you have your Bibles or your story Bibles this morning, I'll tell you where to go. If you've got your story Bible, turn to page 76. If you've got your regular Bible, turn to Numbers chapter 14. We're going to be in Numbers 14, and then we're going to back up to 11, 12, and 13 today, and then we're going to skip over to Deuteronomy because that's what the story this week covers is Numbers and Deuteronomy. The people of Israel have come all the way out of Egypt. They have gone to the Mount Sinai where they've gotten the law of God so they could be that nation of priests that God wanted them to be. Remember, God had called his people, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be the people that would represent him to the world. But there was one more promise, one more dream that there was to be fulfilled, and that dream was to bring them to the Promised Land. If you've ever seen Veggie Tales, there's a great song called the Promised Land song. But anyhow, if you can get to the Promised Land, you can begin to build and you can begin to become the nation that God's designed you to be. But sadly, as you see from our drawing this morning, the dream of the Promised Land during this period becomes a bit of a nightmare. Dreams can become nightmares. I, I, my father had a dream. I think back on this as, as, I, as I'm an older guy now. My father had a dream. You might say, what, victory life? Well, maybe that was one of his dreams. But, 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 but he had just as strong a dream, and that dream for him was to spend a glorious week every two years fishing in northern Minnesota with his family. That was his dream. That's what he wanted out of life. That was his dream vacation. Pack up his three boys and his wife, drive 20 hours, and then fish for a week, because isn't that awesome? Now, 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 I have to tell you, every two years it got worse. I, in fact, by the time that we were teenagers, when we would get in the car to Minnesota, my older brother would start singing, Holiday Road. If anybody doesn't know, that's the theme song from Vacation, you know? Chevy Chase on his way to Wally World. Now, I never watched the, the, the bad version. I watched the Saturday afternoon version, just like you did. I know, I know. 
But I want to tell you, that's how these vacations were awful. Now, if the adult me, because my kids are now of age, right? If the adult Matthew could go back and talk to my, my father before these vacations, I would say to him that the warning signs for a bad vacation are there. <laughs> Dad, the warning signs for this falling apart are apparent. Number one, you are going to drive 20 hours in the car with your kids from Northeast Ohio, and the destination is not Disney. Don't do that. That's number one. Number two, young boys enjoy fishing for about 15 minutes. An entire week of this is not a good plan. I mean, by the time we had crossed our lines 46 times, we were like throwing punches in the boat every year, all right? And then finally, and I have to understand this now as an adult, my mom never complained, but I have yet to meet the woman whose deep desire for a relaxing vacation was to hang out in a cabin. There were all of the hallmarks that this dream could become a nightmare, and the sunburns, and the fistfights, and the mechanical failures, and the mosquitoes, and all of the problems inherent in a fishing trip to northern Minnesota were apparent. Now, I would do that with my buddies now, but I would never do that to my children. Dreams can become nightmares. And finally, there was finally that one vacation that we went there, and my dad, as we're driving home, goes, we are never going to do this again. <laughs> and we were all like, yes, yes, we will never do that again. Well, we have a cautionary tale for you this morning. There's a cautionary tale from the Bible. In fact, the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tell us to look back at this period in Israel's history as a cautionary tale so that the dream that God has for us does not become a nightmare. Let's start right in the middle of the nightmare, and then we're going to talk about the things that should have been hallmarks that should have warned them that they were on their way to a bad spot. So you're in Numbers chapter 14, or you're on page 76 of the story. Let's read. These people are on the doorstep of the promised land. They have left Mount Sinai, and they are about to enter the land God had promised their ancestors, and this is what happens. Chapter 14, verse 1, that night all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. On the doorstep to the promised land, and they're weeping aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and said to them, If only we died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They are on the doorstep of God's fulfillment of the promise. They are 14 months removed from walking through the Red Sea on dry land. They have God going with them in a cloud by day, in a pillar of fire by night. The presence of the Lord is with them. They are in the midst of fulfilling God's destiny for them. And they say, no. No way. We're out. They wept aloud. It says. They, they said, we can't do this. They, they, they are saying of God, he's just going to let us all die. As if what had happened 14 months ago hadn't happened. He's just going to let us all die. Not only that, Moses and Aaron, you guys are toast for bringing us to this point. In fact, it says a little bit further down in chapter 14, they talked about stoning the leaders. We're going to stone Moses and Aaron. They are on the doorstep to the promised land, and they completely rebel. 
Now look at page 77 or in your Bibles at verse 19. God only stops this rebellion by coming down into the camp. Otherwise, Moses and Aaron might have been killed. Moses, being as humble a man as possible, goes and prays for his people. God, don't smite them even though they deserve it. <laughs> look at verse 19. Moses says to God, in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And the Lord replied, I have forgiven them, as surely as you ask, nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. The people that had been delivered from Egypt after those plagues, the people who had walked through the Red Sea on dry land, the people who had received the, the instruction of God and seen his power at Mount Sinai are not going to get to the promised land. God says, you go back in the wilderness and you wander for 40 years. And when that initial generation dies off, the generation after that can come into the land. That's why this chapter is entitled, Wandering. That is the, that's the end game here. Because God's dream for them becomes their nightmare. How did we get into this mess? Well, God gives us a hint in what he says to Moses. These people tested me ten times. Now think about that number for just a minute. Ten plagues brought them out of Egypt. But since they've been out of Egypt these 14 months, ten different times they were ready to rebel against God. They were ready to go the other way from what God was trying them, uh, trying to bring them to do. These are God's people, the ones who have received all of his benefits, and they get to the doorstep of the promised land, and they refuse to go in. But as I mentioned, this is a cautionary tale. These folks were ripe for rebellion. And if 1 Corinthians and Hebrews tell us the truth, then we as the people of God today should look at this tale, should look at how these folks got there and make sure that we go the opposite direction. Could you imagine coming to the doorstep of the fruition of a great plan and then deciding, you know what, I think I'm not going to do that. I think I'm going to back away. Well, that's what these people did. How did they get there? Well, it all starts with a murmur. Turn back in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11. We're going to see three tales that tell us what makes these people ripe for this type of rebellion. If you're in your storybook Bibles, go back to the beginning of this chapter, page 71. Directly after leaving Mount Sinai, they begin to travel to the promised land, and this is what it says of the people of God. Look at chapter 11, verse 1 and following. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the place was called Taberah, that means the burning place, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. Now, it says complain in the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible, but if you really want to dive a little deeper into the Hebrew, the, the real word is they were murmuring. They were beginning to murmur that perhaps God wasn't so good, that perhaps he really wasn't on their side, that perhaps he wasn't as faithful as they like to sing in church about. 
that, that perhaps he, he didn't have good intentions for them. They're just murmuring about their hardships, their hardships. Now, these hardships were so incredibly important that, as you can see, the Bible lists what they are. No, the Bible doesn't tell us. Bible doesn't tell us a thing. That's how unimportant the hardships were. Now think about this for just a second. They have left the mountain of the Lord. They are on their way to the promised land, and they start complaining about the little stuff. They start murmuring. They start talking amongst themselves about, I can't believe God's doing this to us. And you're like, hold on a minute. What is God doing to us? He's bringing us to the promised land. Imagine for a moment if you had just mortgaged your future and decided to take your kids to Disney World. And, and, and you get them in the car, and I, I've been there, and it costs a lot of money. You get them in the car, and all they're doing is fighting and complaining for 20 hours. What would you say to them? You'd look at them and say, we are going to Disney World. Why don't you be happy? What is wrong with you? We are going to the happiest place on earth, and all you guys are doing is fighting and complaining and talking about how we stopped at McDonald's and not Taco Bell. Why are you doing this? Just enjoy yourself. Have some fun. Get excited. And your kids, in the back seat, you would be furious. Could you imagine? God has brought these people out of all of this stuff. He's brought them out of slavery. He's destroyed an army on their behalf, a a Pharaoh's army that drowns in the Red Sea. He he brings them to the mountain of God, displays his power. He, He says, you get to be my people. I am the one and only God. You get to represent me on the earth. And they're murmuring. And they're murmuring. So what's the penalty for that? Well, God's God's cool. He just scares them good. You know? He just scares them. He he sends fire throughout and and the outskirts of the camp. So they're like, oh, fire, right? That would be a little bit terrifying. If if, if a blaze erupted right here, we'd be out of here in a hurry. And we'd also, we'd want to know what caused the blaze. Well, God's anger caused the blaze because these people had lost focus on what God was bringing them to. That's what murmuring about hardships is all about. It's letting the little stuff of life keep us from focusing on the place that God's trying to get us to. And there's a difference between murmuring and lamenting. There is a book in the Bible called Lamentations. Lamenting is really crying out in sorrow over the hardships and the sadness that have befallen you. Murmuring is a completely different thing. Murmuring is about continually speaking as if God has forsaken you. You ever met somebody who's like that? Continually speaking as if God has forsaken you. God hasn't forsaken you. Your life isn't just in a dumpster but you're acting like it is. That's what's going on here on their way to the promised land. So that's story number one. That's sign number one that they might be in full rebellion to God pretty, pretty quickly. Now, look at verse four of that exact same chapter or move on to page 72. Look at verse four. Now the rabble with them began to crave other food. Apparently the fire wasn't enough. The rabble with them began to crave other food and again the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. You don't want an Egyptian praying for you close up. But now we have lost our appetite. We don't see anything but this manna. They begin to complain about the food. Now they're on their way to the promised land. For those of you who have been in church a little bit or watched VeggieTales, the promised land is the land flowing with Milk and honey, 
right? This idea that it's going to be a great place for them to live with the way that they know how to live. They are on their way, but the food's not good enough on the journey. Whew. Boy, do you ever feel like these people? <coughs> you just can't stop complaining. But what really takes place here is the complaining, <coughs> the murmuring becomes a movement. The murmuring becomes a movement. We find out here in chapter 11 that all of a sudden, these people, thank you, Pastor Otto, these people begin to stand at the entrance to their tents and wail. Think about this for a minute. What would cause you to go to the entrance in your tent and just go, oh, <laughs> why would you do that? Because somebody told you to. Because you're, you're wanting to make it look as if somebody's not taking care of you the way that they should. If you read this story from chapter 11, you find out that Moses takes this very personally. He goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, th this, this feels like it's about me. All these people standing at the entrance to the tents, they, they planned this. They're wanting to make this whole thing look bad. They're, they're wanting to show that we don't have our act together, me and you, God. This is a problem. This is a problem. Well, God's solution is simple. He'll give them meat. In fact, he drives quail into the camp by a wind. But there's a penalty. There's a penalty for these people in their play acting. And the penalty is the leader, the, ra the leaders, the rabble that's described here in chapter 11. The rabble, as they eat this meat, begin to die of a plague. Food poisoning, if you will. You see, that's what happens when people are in the mood to murmur. Eventually, their murmuring becomes a movement. They've got to get people with them to act the same way and think the same way and say the same things in order to prove a point that they're trying to get to. Well, the penalty for this particular sin is God brings judgment on the leaders, and now you wonder if you should ever have quail again. Finally, the third vignette is seen on page 73, or the beginning of chapter 12 in your Bibles. The third sign that maybe when they get to the promised land, things won't go so well. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Moses, or I'm sorry, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now, Miriam and Aaron were the, were the sister and brother of Moses. Aaron had become the high priest of God's new religious order, if you will. Miriam was a leader among the people, a prophetess, if you will. In fact, when God delivers his people out of Egypt, she leads the song as the people are magnifying and worshiping the Lord. But all of a sudden, with all of these different little murmurs and complainings and movements going on, the unity among the leadership is weakened. The unity among the leaders, all of a sudden we find out that they start speaking against Moses because he married a Cushite. Now, I don't expect you to know what a Cushite is. If you know what a Cushite is, God bless you for knowing what a Cushite is. A Cushite was somebody who actually lived south of Egypt, modern-day area of Ethiopia, 
and it says that Mo, Miriam and Aaron began to speak against Moses because of his Cushite wife. And the, all the Bible gives us for a description is because she was a Cushite. Xenophobia. Racism. If you've ever met somebody from Ethiopia, you know that folks from Ethiopia are darker skinned. These would have been people from the Mediterranean. They would have been brown skinned. This is an issue of racism. This is an issue of xenophobia. They, they don't like Moses' wife, and they pick on her and pick on Moses merely because of her nationality and her skin color. You say, where's the proof that that's the, that's the issue? Well, I'll show you in just a minute. Then they go on to say, oh, and by the way, and this is really the issue, isn't it? They pick at something at Moses. They, 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 they pick something random that really doesn't matter, and then they go one step further. By the way, God speaks through us too, don't you know? We should have more power. We should have more authority. We should have a better way or a better angle to, to, to set up more of what we think needs to be going on. And the penalty for both Miriam and Aaron, if you read the rest of this story, is utter embarrassment. First for Miriam, God strikes her with a disease on her skin that turns her stark white. Read it. He gives her a skin infection that makes her go as white as the snow because she'd been complaining against her sister-in-law that was the opposite. That wasn't the embarrassment. The embarrassment was that was a violation of the cleanliness codes of the Israelite people. She had to go outside the camp for seven days, and the whole nation had to wait for her to get moving again. That's embarrassing. Have you ever had your family wait because you need to make a quick run to the bathroom? She's making a whole nation wait for seven days because her skin has turned white as snow. What embarrassment. You say, well, this isn't fair. I read the story. Nothing happens to Aaron. Au contraire, mon frere. Remember the issue that they had? Doesn't God also speak through us? Miriam is given this skin disease. She's just in, in shambles. And what does Aaron have to do? He has to run up to Moses and go, Moses, you better pray for her. She's in trouble. But doesn't God also speak through Aaron? Isn't Aaron just as big a spiritual authority as Moses? Aaron has to run and humble himself and say, Moses, help us in the midst of all this and be reminded that Moses does have a special relationship to the Lord. All of these things, these three different vignettes, we're like two, three chapters before where we started. They are supposed to show us the pattern, the cautionary tale for God's people of what just may take place before you miss God's dream and his plan for you. What happens? They come to the doorstep of the promised land in chapter 13. Moses sends 12 spies into the land of Canaan. He says, tell me if it's a good land that God's bringing us to. They go and they spend 40 days in the land of Canaan. They find all of this fruit. They see that to be up on these hillsides in the middle of the spine of that country, they would be perfect for their, for their sheep and their cattle. What a great place for us to live. This is the place God's, that, that God is bringing us to. They bring the fruit back with them. They go and they report to Moses and Aaron and all of the Israelites on page 75, chapter 13, 
16, verse 26. And this is what the spies on the doorstep of the promised land came back saying. Verse 26, chapter 13. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And they reported to them in the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Woohoo! It's a good land. But, but the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. And we even saw the descendants of Anak there. Twelve spies come back. And immediately ten of them begin to say, we shouldn't go in there. In fact, they say, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak was a fabled ancient giant. In essence, we saw the tall folks there. The cities are fortified. We can't go in there. That's why in the very next chapter, as we read when we started, the Israelites are wailing, God brought us all this way to die by the sword. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's get new leaders. Ten guys are going, we can't do this. Only two say, hold on a minute, what are you talking about? Joshua and Caleb, two important members of God's story, say, Let's just go in there and do this thing. God's with us. Has anything in the last 14 months showed us that God is with us? Let's go. But the 10 move throughout the camp, and they convince the people, we can't go. We can't do this. God's forsaken us. We can't do it. The leadership is, is, is not going to be able to get it done. We can't do it. You've seen all the hardships that we've had. We, we can't do it. God's not going to bring us into this promised land. Let's just go back to Egypt. This is a mess. And what do the people do? Well, you read it with me. Chapter 14. They weep. They wail. They rebel. And they miss God's plan for their generation. They, instead of flourishing in the promised land, are resigned to futility in the wilderness. Futile. These were the people who had walked through the Red Sea but were too scared to walk into the promised land. God had done so much on their behalf but the next time things got tough they were ripe in their spirit, in their heart to say, God's not with me anymore. That's how we got there. Where we are in our heart and our spirit and our minds, where we are with God day to day, it truly does affect whether or not God's plan is fulfilled in our life. And this cautionary tale for the people of God is huge for us to grab hold of. Remember God said they tested me ten times? We only read four. Only four times did we read this morning if you'd like to stay until 1230, I'll take you through the other six. No, I'm not going to do that. All of these times, they test the Lord, they doubt the Lord, in spite of God's presence being with them and all God has done for them in the past. They grumble, they make a movement, they rebel, the leadership is weakened, 
and they completely decide we can't do what God has for us to do. And they wander in the wilderness in futility. Aren't you glad that's not where they ended the chapter? That's not where they end the chapter. They take us into Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy where 40 years later, here's Moses with their children on the doorstep to the promised land again. God's not done. He is going to bring his people into the promised land. But before he does this, he's going to remind them of something incredibly important. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9 or page 86 in your storybook Bibles, because I want you to see a familiar theme, and God's going to remind this next generation of Israelites of something very, very important. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, or in page 86 in your story Bibles, after the Lord has driven the Canaanites out before you, Don't say to yourself, well, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. The Lord will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, We see this familiar theme once again. Human sin, the plan gets messed up. You begin to wonder, what is going on here? Is it ever going to come to fruition? And then all of a sudden you see that God will unfold his plan in spite of human sin as long as people will trust him. God will unfold his plan in spite of human sin. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and his sons, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all those 12 others. God will unfold his plan in spite of human sin. He is not doing what he's doing in the world because we're righteous. He's doing what he's doing in the world because he wants to bless us. And he wasn't bringing the Israelites to knock out the Canaanites because the Israelites were righteous. The Canaanites were a wicked people. Bad people. See, he wants to remind these people that you're no more righteous than your parents were. But my plan is still intact. And if you'll accept my words and my way, you will flourish. Last scriptures to look at today, page 87, Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. Moses is about to give leadership to a new person. This generation, the second generation of Israelites, 40 years after the fact, are ready to finally go into the promised land. And through Moses, God speaks in chapter 30, verse 15, to this new generation of Israelites. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commandments, his decrees, and his laws, and then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. They have a choice to make. They can flourish, or they can grab hold of the same futility as their parents' generation. God has a plan for our generation. 
He has something that he wants us to accomplish for him in this time. And he sets before us this choice. Trust me and obey me and get it done. Or distrust me and disobey me. And watch your life flitter away. The choice that they had is the choice that we have. Where is our heart? Where is our mind? Where is our soul? Where is our spirit? How do we protect against futility? Well, the first thing we do is the opposite of the first thing we saw from them. Instead of murmuring, we worship. Instead of talking about all that's wrong, let's talk about all that God made right. Instead of focusing on the hardships of our life, it's good to focus on who God is and what he has done and be reminded of all that he has done on our behalf. That's why churches across the globe this morning start with what they call worship. Because life is tough. If you only focus on your hardships, your mind and your heart are not going to be in the place where you're ready to do what God's called you to do. We're to be people of worship. We're to be people of unity. Ones who aren't going to stand at the entrance to our tent and <laughs> wail because things are not going our way. Getting lost in the small stuff. Instead, recognizing that God has given us a community of faith to drive forward for what he has called us to. Specifically for you who are, who are in this room today, who are part of Victory Life, that we might point people to Jesus so he can rewrite every life story. That's what we're here for. We're here for the great plan of God. Not here for the food. Though I do like when we eat together. We're not here for the little stuff. We're not here for the, for the me stuff. We're here for the God stuff. And when you remember to be here for the God stuff, you stay in unity, and that also helps you to honor God's leadership. It's real easy to begin to pick apart your life group leader, your Sunday school teacher, pastors, it's elders. It's real easy to pick them apart because they have a Cushite wife. You want more influence, you want more power, you want things your way, and so what do you do? You attack them for no good reason. You say, Pastor Matt, do you feel attacked this morning? No. No, you guys are, you guys are really sweet, and I mean that. I, I talk to pastor friends of mine, they have a hard time sometimes. But I want to tell you, the way the enemy works and the way that these things fall by the wayside, God's plans become nightmares, is when people give in to this stuff that we're talking about today. They don't remain in a heart of worship. They don't remain in a place of unity. And they'd love to get a hearing and see the leadership weakened so that their plan can come to fruition. It's a cautionary tale. But most important, above all of these things, is that we trust him. Trust him that he does have a good future, a good purpose, and a good plan for us. That God will accomplish great things through his people in our generation. And when we see the hardships and when we see the stuff of life that makes you go, we could never move forward again, you go, God, I trust you. Let's take a step. God, I believe you. I'm moving forward. God, I'm not done, and my generation of Christians will not be put on the shelf. We trust you. 
The promised land is just over the horizon. And we could die on the vine of self-focus. Or we can live on the vine of trusting God. It's a choice we all make. Let us make the one that leads to life and prosperity and flourishing. Let's pray.